When was the last time you focused on a sound? What was it? Did it last for a long time, or was it fleeting? Did you think about the sound afterward? Sound surrounds us at every moment of our lives. Our perception of it may be dimmed or altered because of sleep or pressure created by changes of altitude or due to temporary, progressive, or permanent impairments. We hear, but we also can feel sound's effects through vibration. Dave Seidel is a composer and musician who works with sound and music in a way that invites you to focus and experience new depths of systems that Western ears may not be accustomed to hearing. If you haven't had the opportunity to hear Dave's music, you can visit mysterybear.bandcamp.com, and among the pieces you'll find there is a work called Elegy for Harold Budd, which we referenced several times during our conversation. I hope you'll check it out before listening further. Welcome to the Root Cellar. Thank you, Dave, for having me to your studio today. How would you describe your music? It's a good question because I always have trouble with labels and genres because they're kind of reductive. So I write stuff that uses a lot of long tones. And so sometimes I I say it's drone music. I sometimes use the word ambient just because it helps communicate to other people more, more or less what it is. But I don't really think of it as ambient since the term ambient to me, at least as defined by by Brian Eno, is, is something that music that you can pay attention to or have in the background. And I, that applies to some of my music, but I intend to write stuff that people will pay attention to. So I don't really think of it as ambient, but because it's droney, like ambient music, I sometimes use that term just as okay. a simplification. But So I don't really have a good label. I sometimes use the term experimental which kind of fits sometimes in the sense that I feel like every time I start a new project, I'm experimenting with some new idea. You know, I'm not just using the same instrument and there's nothing wrong with using the same instrument, you know, but I'm trying to do something new each time, some new configuration of whatever I have, whatever I have in terms of hardware, whatever I can do with software and so in that sense, it's experimental. So saying ex- experimental like electronic music is also valid. It is primarily electronic music that I do. When did you come to electronic music? Pretty late in life, actually. Not until the early 2000s. Okay. I think my first release of this type of music was 2006, 2007. And up till then... I mean, I started out as a guitarist. I studied classical guitar. 
I got a degree that it's a liberal arts degree at Simon's Rock, but it was based on music theory and composition. And then I played primarily electric guitar for years after that. And that's what I did in New York during that time, which was, it was a good time to be in, in New York uh, as a electric guitar player who could read music because there weren't that many people who could read. So I had the opportunity to work with some really interesting composers in the downtown scene people like uh, Lois Vierk and uh, Scott Johnson and a few other people. It was also a nice period of time because it was a short window maybe of, I don't know, five or six years when there was money flowing in from grants, arts okay. grants. Arts grants. What, uh, what was the time period again? I'm sorry? The, the time period? The oh, this, so I was there 78 to 88. So okay. I'm talking about really the 80s, the early 80s. Or, or, you know, early to late 80s, uh, there was money that was coming into mostly to choreographers. And then choreographers would hire composers and then composers would hire musicians. So I did a lot of, I worked on a lot of projects where we were doing interesting music for dance projects. Oh, cool. Not all, but that was a lot of it. It was, there was a lot going on then. And it was a really nice stimulus, you know, for the, for people. It was a lot of projects came about that way. And so it was a neat time to be there. I had a band of my own called People Falling. And I was in a band called Look Wapa Papa, which is, uh, was a, uh, instrumental kind of punk jazz kind of thing, funky jazz stuff. And then I played with the, some of the people I mentioned, like Scott Johnson, Lois Vierk, uh, played with Guy Klusevic a little bit, the great accordionist. But then, you know, I got married, we had a kid, we got tired of putting up with the city life. And so we left. And after that, I was still playing guitar, but I started to lose interest in the guitar. And also I was losing some facility and I real I found out later that I was it was carpal tunnel that I was getting. I oh, wow. with okay. carpal tunnel in both hands and, and it eventually had surgery in both hands to relieve that. So in retrospect that may have been part of my disenchantment with the instrument. But I didn't feel inventive on the instrument anymore. I didn't feel like it was I was getting much from it. And also, I was no longer living in a place where there were a lot of opportunities to work with people. I mean, it, it, mm. when you're playing other people's music and there's a lot of good music to play, you don't worry about it too much because there's always something to do that's that's cool and interesting. But when we moved upstate and there wasn't much going on, it sort of revealed for me my own deficiencies in terms of... Uh, Doing that now, I always had aspirations of being a composer, but I didn't do a lot of that. I, I wrote some things. So after a few years, well, so we moved out of the city in '88, and it wasn't until the early 2000s that I started playing with electronic music on the computer using C Sound. C Sound is a is software that it's like a computer language for writing uh, music. Between that and listening to getting into stuff like uh, Lamont Young's music and some other things, it, it all came together for me as this is what I wanted to do. I, I like long, drony things. I like things that would really make you focus on small details in the music. And I felt that that was very idiomatic for the electronic medium. You know, those kind of long tones. Mm -hmm. You can't play that way on an acoustic instrument without a lot of effort you know, or, yeah. you know, to, to have, you know, 
on a stringed instrument, on a bowed instrument, you can sort of do very long tones, but there's always some interruption. And so you have to have multiple people sort of overlapping in order to make it sound like it's really continuous. And it's not really possible with other instruments because people only have so much breath or whatever, or a piano has a beautiful sound, but it decays. Right. Whereas electronics, you can really do anything, but I felt that drones were very idiomatic to that medium. And also I was interested, this is mainly from Lamont Young again, in different tuning systems, non-traditional microtonal tuning systems, which are which can be difficult to achieve with conventional instruments. Mm-hmm. With some, you know, there are some instruments that are suited for like boat instruments that don't have frets or trombone or things like that. But most instruments have built-in scales. You know, the piano is tuned a certain way, guitar is fretted a certain way. I wanted to experiment with pure intervals that you don't have on those instruments. And that's another thing that's idiomatic in my view to electronic music where you can be very precise with tuning and you can get any intervals you want, you know, any note and any interval. So essentially uh, one way to describe this would be playing between the cracks of the keys on a piano. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You you can do that with a piano if you retune the whole piano, but that's, and and it's been done and that's what uh, Lamont Young did with the well-tuned piano. And it's, beautiful. It's beautiful stuff. But he had to dedicate a piano to that. And that's, it's an expensive proposition to keep that in tune and, and uh, maintained. So there's a lot of people who do different kinds of uh, microtonal music in acoustic world and in the electric world and in mixtures of both. But it was around that time, the early 2000s, I realized that this is, was where my voice was, so to speak, in that area in that in that idiom and in those kind of sounds and that's what i started doing i'm kind of making an assumption from how you've presented this that you went from a a very collaborative conversation about music to to a place of of introspection and personal reflection that yeah. led you in this direction yeah i think that's uh that's accurate that's interesting partly because i was no longer around really much of a music community you know, having left the city. When I was living in the Albany area, I didn't know too many other people playing music, a few, a couple people. There are people playing music up here, but not necessarily the kind of music that I was interested in doing. And up here, there isn't really much of a, a music scene at all, really, unfortunately. I have a friend in town who, Eric Gagne, who does a, a great job at making things happen. We had a music festival here called The Thing in the Spring for about 11 years. Every springtime that grew from two days to five days. And he would bring in people from all over, very eclectic, all kinds of music. But that's an exception, you know, and that took one particular person's sort of exceptional energy and (laughs) impulse to do that. But there's nowhere around here to play the kind of music I play. Yeah, For me to do gigs, I have to go down to Western Mass, where there's a, a pretty good community of, of that kind of stuff, or down to Providence, or to Eastern Mass outside of Boston. So I have to basically leave the state <laughs> <laughs> in order to have a venue, Okay, know, yeah, with very few exceptions. I know we're, we're just sort of coming, hopefully, out of the pandemic, so I'm sure no gigs for some time. Right, right. But before that, how often were you able to do gigs? Well, for the last 
couple years before the pandemic, I had slowed down a bit because I wanted to spend more time on each piece of music. But there was a time period for a while where I was playing almost monthly. There was a a place, a great place in Lowell, Mass called 119 Gallery. It's no longer there, but it was an art gallery. Walter Wright, who was one of the people running the place, he goes way back in experimental music and video back to early kitchen, the kitchen days in New York and stuff like that. So he was very open and he fostered a really good community of improvisers primarily. And I was just getting into electronics and, you know, I got, I went down there and got to know him and some other people there and started playing there and got to do pretty regular sets down there, usually by myself, sometimes collaborating with others. And I got into this rhythm where I would, for every, I might be playing almost every month. And for each one, I would come up with a new piece, you know, basically a new assemblage of gear. This is before I had modular synths. It was all guitar pedals, like these things on the shelves behind you. And that was a lot of fun. But then the gallery closed and I wanted to spend more time thinking about composition you know, and instead of just uh, sort of giving, having these continual deadlines that I made for myself, I wanted to spend as much time as I wanted thinking about a piece and okay. letting it develop and letting it, uh, so I slowed down quite a bit. There's actually on my website, there's a page that shows all the performances I've done since I started doing this stuff. So you can sort of see that started small and then it got kind of dense and then it thinned out a bit. And now, of course, it's it's very thinned out and and that's fine you know i don't think that i'm going to seek to you know ever get back to that kind of rhythm i mean it would be one thing if there were venues around here yeah but i have to travel to go anywhere it's you know not as easy for me to stay up late <laughs> anymore <laughs> and also you know i've been developing some arthritis that makes it so that I don't really want to do a lot of equipment hauling either, you know, like these speakers here, these powered speakers, which are great. I usually take with me because most of the places I tend to play at are DIY kind of places, galleries and living rooms and barns or whatever. And you have to bring your own stuff, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those are formidable speakers. I can imagine carrying those around. Yeah. So not into doing that so much anymore. And also, you know, we're in an era where you've got things like Bandcamp, which I think is great, which is a way, it's a site where people can publish their own music completely under their own control sell it. You know, Bandcamp takes a a little bit, but they don't take a whole lot. And since the pandemic, they've been having these monthly, uh, first Friday of each month, usually they have a day where they don't take any revenue at all, which is really nice since they recognize that a lot of people who depend on, I don't depend on that income, but some people do. Mm -hmm. And they can't, people can't tour much anymore. For a while, they weren't touring at all. And so the only way you could make money as a musician was by selling it online. So anyway, it's easy to publish your own work now. Right. And to do it under your own control completely. I like that. I don't really feel a need to... I mean, I like performing. I'd like to perform once in a while. If it's a good place, you know, where there's going to be people, you know. I'm also tired of playing at places where there's more people on the bill than there are in the audience. (laughs) You know, like a lot of of DIY type things. That's fun to 
it's but it becomes more of a, a social situation than really a concert situation in a way you know social in, in terms of hanging out with other musicians and that's that's nice but there's a lot of effort involved <laughs> yeah know? yeah uh, I'm not it's not about money because you know I I have a job. I don't expect to make a living from music ever. I mean, I did hope to do that maybe in my 20s for a while, but that didn't last very long. <laughs> so I'm kind of content to to be here working on my stuff and putting it out when I feel like putting it out. And yeah. if opportunities, the right opportunities come up to perform, then I'll certainly consider that. But I don't consider it my primary aim. Mm-hmm. With the reduction of playing live, shows how are you getting feedback to your work or is feedback important to you at this point well feedback is is nice you know praise is nice you know but also any kind of feedback is nice but you know i don't feel like i'm getting that much less feedback now than i was when i was playing because when i was playing i would mostly i would get feedback from other musicians which is nice and sometimes from audience members which is nice but I think I get a pretty good amount of feedback now through through Bandcamp, through Twitter, Reddit, places like that, Instagram. You know, I use all of those things because they're there and, and they're helpful, you know, Facebook even. I mean, Facebook has a lot of problems, but I'm not going to quit it because it's, for me, it's uh, one of the best ways to be connected to other musicians hmm. and family. I feel like I get plenty of feedback through all of those means. It may not be, you know, one-to-one in-person feedback, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't need that. But really, when it comes down to it, I'm making the music I want to hear. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make sounds that I get in my head and that I haven't heard before. And I'm trying to please myself more than anything. If other people get into it, great. You know, <laughs> that's fantastic. But I don't depend on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'd be sad if I put something out and and nobody ever downloaded it or or bought it. So, I mean, I'm I need some some of that like anyone else does, some kind of feedback loop, you know, whether whether it's comments or uh people paying for it or whatever. So, that's all helpful and encouraging, but really I'm trying to please myself. I'm my own audience in that sense. I mean, I think you have to be that way as a, as an artist. That's that's how it feels for me. Anyway, yeah, as an artist, you know, if I'm going to elevate myself to that level, right? Is that I'm not doing it to, I'm not trying to get on any charts, you know, I'm not trying to book tours or any of that kind of crap. I'm trying to make music that I want to hear. And that's it. That's a great place to be, it seems like to me. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how you're creating pieces because, and as we're talking, you're surrounded by module synths and uh, instruments that you're building and in the process of building. As I understand, the building of the instrument is integral to the piece that's created. Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, well, there's a, there's a few reasons for building these modules. One of them is is uh, financial, oh. right? It, it's an expensive habit to get into modular synths. You know, each of these little things can cost anywhere from 150 to several hundred dollars, you know? That adds up, but it's a lot less if you can just buy uh, a circuit board and a panel and then buy the parts yourself and then put it together according to the plan. So that's one of the reasons they do it. I also do it because I enjoy the activity 
and I feel like I'm gaining some skills. But to get back to your original question, building, I, I'm not building stuff to make a piece, but I definitely am influenced by what I have available to me. Before I was using modular synths and I was mainly using pedals, if I got a new pedal, and this was like during the time when I was playing pretty frequently, if I got a new pedal, that would probably be the core of the next piece of music I would write because it would have sounds I didn't get before. And that would sort of spark some investigation. And that's true with this stuff too. Whether I built it or bought it, it's adding a new something new to the palette. So ideas come in different ways. Sometimes I'll get an idea just in my head, kind of abstractly, and usually it starts from that. But also it can start just from getting some new piece of equipment or building something, starting to play with it, and starting to see what some of the possibilities are, and then exploring that. Like today, I, I'm sort of starting a new investigation, right? I've had this instrument, uh, the Divina, for a little while. I've put out a, my most recent release, which is called uh, Elegy for Harold Budd, uses this pretty heavily. I, I was just thinking last night of, I do play this through effects, but I wanted to experiment now with putting this through the modular system, which has, you know, almost infinite possibilities. So it doesn't, it's not anywhere near to being even the, the germ of a piece yet, but I'm starting to get some sounds I haven't gotten before. I'm starting to see some new possibilities. And that's usually the milieu out of which a piece forms. So sometimes I, I have an idea and I'll try to manifest that idea in a hardware or in the software. And sometimes I'm starting just from experimentation but it's rare that the initial idea is necessarily what the eventual piece turns out to be. It's yeah. usually like a kind of a convoluted path and driven by, you know, intuition and accident and, and all of those things, which is great. Yeah, that is great. When you say initial idea, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, so trying to think of a concrete example Let's say I want to, it's one of the things I do in my music is explore sonorities and a sonority to just to kind of define that is if you, it's the sound like a, that a chord would make, you play a chord on the, on any instrument or in an orchestra or whatever, that, that sound is a sonority. My music is mostly sonority. You know, I, it's not about rhythm. It's not about melody. It's usually about finding a sonority and then really exploring that, stretching it out. So sometimes I'll have, or often I'll have an idea for a particular interval or set of intervals I want to play with based on, sometimes based on math, because uh, when you, in the world of, of microtonal music and in the sort of subset of microtonal music that I'm in, which it uses something called just intonation, just intonation is based on ratios. It goes back to Pythagoras, you know, when Pythagoras had a, an instrument called a monochord, meaning one string. And he showed that, well, if you pluck that string open, you got a note. If you pluck it, uh, holding it halfway down, you're going to get a note that's twice as high. That's an octave, and that's a ratio of two to one. Okay, and then each of those other intervals can be described as a ratio. Uh, at least it, if you do, that's what just intonation is about. So there are usually ratios of whole numbers. This is as opposed to 
our typical tuning system that, say, a piano uses, called, which is called equal temperament, where you take an octave and you divide it into 12 even pieces, one for each note. And they're not on the boundaries of perfect intervals or anything. They're just dividing it up evenly. So actually, and we're used to that sound and it sounds good to us, but those are actually, if you thought of them as ratios, they would be irrational numbers, most oh, of them. That's interesting. So people who are into just intonation like me are looking at mostly ratios of whole numbers, what we think of as pure intervals, like a, a fifth that has doesn't have any beating. Beating is when sounds are just a little out of tune with one another. You hear this. Okay. Pure intervals don't have that sound. Pure intervals, like in the music of, uh, again, uh, Lamont Young, <laughs> they have a, an entirely different character because they they just ring and they just uh, and each one has a different flavor or a different emotion you know anyway it's it's fascinating and that's what one of the things that drives me so sometimes I'll have I'll just want to explore a particular ratio or a set of ratios and I might just start there you know and I don't know what the sound is going to be or what I'm going to do with it but it's a sort of an abstract idea and then I'll just come down here and I'll either write some code to do that, to make that sound, and then I'll go from there, or I'll tune it on one of these electronic instruments and get that kind of sound, and uh, then I'll just take it from there. So when you talk about sounds having feelings uh, uh, within just intonation, is that part of your intuitive process, trending towards feelings or away from certain feelings? Not uh, deliberately. Because I say feelings, but it's not like I ascribe particular emotions mm. uh, to okay. different things. Uh, I'm not like someone with synesthesia who will hear a note, the note C, and hears that as the color yellow, for example. Synesthesia is when yeah. you have different senses that cross like that. So some people have very specific feelings, emotions, sensations that they experience from specific colors, specific notes, specific intervals. I, I don't have that. I'm just looking for things that produce an effect that I haven't heard before. And um, in a way that gives me that, that feeling is a very broad word. The right. Way I'm using it. Right? Yeah. I guess I'm trying to narrow in on it. Yeah. 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 It's hard to do that, but it's, maybe sensation is a better word. Okay. The sensation of listening to certain intervals is very different from other intervals. And I can't really describe how that is. That's a subjective thing, you know, sure. but I find it to be true. So I'm sort of always searching for new sounds that feel different from other sounds that sound different from other sounds, but I don't attach them to specific emotions. Okay. Uh, I don't think about it that way. I don't think about it from an emotional perspective. It might end up having a, an emotional impact of some sort. Like this piece I just published recently, the the Elegy for Harold Budd, I was really exploring a certain scale, a scale from Indian music called Marva. And I wasn't trying to do it in the context of Indian classical music because I don't have that background, but I love the sound of that scale. And when I like a scale, I like to hear the different sounds I get from combining the different notes of that scale, the different sonorities that are derived from that scale. And that's what I was starting from. But then as I got into it 
and it started to get a form, yeah, have a form or a shape. It also started to have kind of a elegiac feeling. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but, and also I thought that some of the harmonies I was getting reminded me a little bit of Harold Budd. And I was thinking of Harold Budd because he died, you know, within the last year of COVID and he's one of my favorite composers. And so it sort of pulled me in that direction, but I, I didn't have that intention going into it, but that kind of, those feelings emerged from the musical material that I was playing with. So that's, that's usually how it happens. If I get a certain, if I derive a certain sensation or set of sensations, emotions, whatever, from sound, it's not because I intended that. It's because something emerged and I recognized it and I decided to go with it and maybe uh, emphasize it, purify it, make that, because it's resonating in me. So I'm going to extend that into a piece. We did narrow in on it, I feel I, like. I guess so. Yeah, I, I feel I, like so. I think it's kind of analogous. I mean, I'm not a painter, but I I love art. And, you know, if you look at someone like, I love Rothko's work. And yeah. to, to me, each of his paintings is a sonority. You know, it feels like a sonority to me, or it's analogous to a sonority. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I like that. I, I mean, cool. that that's the closest visual um, analog I can come up with to the kind of things I'm after. Yeah. Yeah. What I like about those is uh, the sense of concentration or focus. Yes. And I was just the other day before I headed up here to New Hampshire, listening to the elegy for Harold Budd and was thinking about that focus and concentration and, and how interesting I thought that was in the context of a world in which focus and concentration, I think, are less and less part of our lives. I think that's a, it's a really good point. And I didn't mention the concept of minimalism before, but mm. I, that's something that means something to me, too. I think the word minimalist, I can embrace that term for my work. And I forget who defined it this way, but someone defined it as forcing the or compelling the viewer i think in the case of visual art to focus on to focus on small things or on one aspect of something you know minimalism is about removing everything but one idea in some case and making that idea the one thing that you can fo will focus on whether it's a line a color you know a shape i look at music that way too and i definitely feel that focus is is really that's i'm very much concerned with that i want to make music that will get me to focus and maybe other people will focus on it too so yeah i i think i think about that a lot that's interesting i'm wondering about focus in terms of so the way i'm hearing your transition into electronic music is that it's in part connected to your moving from new york city out into more town, I don't know, rural is, yeah. is the right rural, word. Sure. sure. Okay. I'm wondering how much, do you feel that landscape or nature impacts your work? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I pay a lot of attention to the sound world around me. It's one of the things that drives me crazy about winter is having to have the windows closed and uh -huh. being, and, and why I use air conditioning sparingly because it, creates this white noise that muffles everything else and you become closed off from the world. I, I really dislike that feeling of not hearing what's going on outside. But I love sitting on our porch 
and listening to the air move, the wind, the wind through the trees, distant sounds, you know, hints of distant sounds. I really think of, I didn't make up this term, uh, although I used it in the title of a piece, I think. I think of the atmosphere as an ocean of gas rather than water, you know, and it is kind of, and we're at the bottom of it. And there's a lot of things that resonate through that. That's what sound is. I mean, sound is vibration through a medium. Mm-hmm. And for us, the medium is air most of the time. So you're hearing periodic waves, you know, propagating through air. Anyway, when I think about that, not too technically, but just in a general way, when I'm listening to sounds out there, I think then that definitely has an influence on me. You know, I like noticing when... Like uh, three or four weeks ago, I was listening to this the sound of the winds through, wind through the leaves, and I realized, oh, this is autumn starting right now, because the sound of the of the wind through the leaves changes as soon as the leaves start to dry out in preparation for, you know, at least for deciduous trees, when they start to dry out and then change color and then drop. Yeah. But before they get to the point that they're even visually different. They start to get drier, and the sound that they make brushing against one another with as the wind goes through it changes. Ah, uh, and I love okay. being able to hear those changes. Or you know, once it's winter, the sound is entirely different because all of those trees are bare. Mm-hmm. So the sound of the wind is very different. So I pay attention to that stuff. It definitely has an influence on me, and and I don't think that kind of sound is expressible in a way that isn't sort of drony, you know, that's about, you know, long duration and focus, you know? Yeah. The wind. Is that a favorite sound? Yeah, I'd say it is. And actually, I realized a couple of years ago that one of the, probably the earliest sound that was significant to me, and as, as a young child, when I was living on my grand, grandparents' poultry farm in upstate New York, in Ghent, New York, was the sound of a small plane passing overhead. Oh. That droning of that of that engine and changing very slightly in pitch as, you know, through the Doppler effect and, and other yeah. other things. That sound has always been with me. That's I love that sound. Yeah. I mean it's not a natural sound. It's it's a sound produced by, you know, human activity in nature. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, you know, I have another piece that is more or less based on that kind of sound, even though I don't use it literally. But I love that sound. And that's that's one of the most significant sounds to me. That is a nice sound, uh, particularly on like a lazy day. Yeah. There's not a lot else going on. Right, right. Yeah. And, and when it's just sound. one engine. Yeah. And a smaller plane is more interesting than one of the high, very high, you know, commercial planes, oh, I think. interesting. I haven't paid much attention. I'll have to do that. I'll have to pay attention to plane size. That's interesting. Well, I, you know, I lived in a place that was near a, a very small airfield, you know, not a commercial airfield. Oh, right. And so that's the kind of stuff I, I heard mostly. And you'd still, you'd hear the big planes once in a while. Yeah. You know, because we were probably on the flight path or not far from the flight path for, you know, Newark and, and uh, JFK and all of those things. But uh, the ones that I noticed were the small ones. They were louder and more, more prominent. Huh. And that's, again, that's one of the things I miss in the wintertime is not being able to hear that stuff from inside. So, you know, you, you can go outside to hear it if it's not too cold. But I do have 
not quite a fantasy. It's more more of an idea. I would lo- love to someday set up microphones like outside the house, just so that I can hear the sound during the cold season when the windows are closed, as if the window was open. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you should totally do that. Whether it's mounted on the roof or or yeah. whatever, you know, it's an idea I've had in the back of my head for a while. I don't know if I'll ever try to do it, but uh, that sounds fun. Are there animal sounds? So so far, the sounds we talked about are, are wind and and machines. Right. Also, I love ocean sounds as well. Oh yeah, yeah, I love animal sounds. I don't feel like they're as closely related to what I do, okay. but we do hear a lot of animal sounds around here. We hear crows all the time and all, all these other birds we hear at night often owls mm. which are really great sounding especially when there's two or three of them sort of having a conversation for a while it can be spooky but also really cool yeah we'll hear groups of coyotes sometimes oh, out in the woods sort of howling at each other yeah howling and yipping those are the ones I, so that's an important part of living out here too, is uh, yeah. having access to those kind of sounds. But not necessarily important in the, Not as in a the direct influence. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to imitate any of those things or the sound of a whale or anything like that. But, you know, I've made sounds that sometimes sound like an underwater creature or something, but it, it wasn't because I was trying to <laughs> imitate it. Very good. Really interested in this new instrument that you made reference to earlier, mm-hmm. which is just uh, two pieces of wood here, like a like a long stick with a, with a cross piece. Cross piece, yeah. And yeah. two strings on it. Mm-hmm. Stringed instrument. And you were telling me earlier when I first uh, arrived about how you'd modified it a bit. Uh, I Yeah, I modified it simply by adding frets to it. It's a fretless instrument. But I... I want to get, because I'm into tuning stuff and microtonal stuff, I, I want really precise tuning, and I distrust my ability to achieve that on a purely fretless instrument. So I'm adapting this technique that's been used for hundreds of years at instruments like the lute or the viola da gamba, and it's actually uh, also used in many Indian instruments like uh, sitar, and that's tied frets. So mm-hmm. these these frets are made from monofilament and they can be moved. So in fact, I move them all the time just a little bit just to get exactly in tune for a particular note. I'll I'll check each pitch on a string and make sure that they're in the the right place. So I can, this is set up for a scale right now called a hexity scale. Before this, it was set up for the Harold Budd piece, so it was set up for the Marva scale. So they were in different places. I could, of course, fret it like a traditional Western instrument in equal temperament, but that doesn't interest me, so I'm not going to do that. But for me, this gives this gives me a lot of flexibility mm. that I wouldn't have in a fixed fret instrument because I can customize it for what the sounds that I want to work with or the scale I want to work with. Okay. So I love it for that. I also love it because I, I was a guitar player for a long time, and, and I still play bass sometimes. But I love the idea of more continuous sounds. And so being able to play with a bow is great. And and I'm still new at that. I'm still learning how to do that. But it's something you don't get from a plucked string, right? Because when you pluck a string, it's going to ring for a little while and then it's going to stop. Just like a piano, when you strike, you 
hit a key, the hammer strikes the string. It's going to vibrate for a little while, and then it's going to die away. Yeah. But with a bowed instrument, as long as you're applying the bow to the string, it's going to vibrate. So it's longer tones, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is what I like. So this I've had not that long. This is made by a company in Russia called Soma. The instrument is called a Divina, D-V-I-N-A. It just has opened up some new possibilities for me. Yeah, it's interesting because this kind of like shortens, if I'm understanding correctly, it shortens your drones a bit, right? Because you can have a lengthier note. But there is a limit to it. Yeah, yeah, because you've got to change directions on the bow, right? So that's where the electronics come in. Oh, okay. So you've you've listened to that Harold Budd piece, and there's you get these long washes of sound. Well, that's from the Divina being played through some effects, a, a looper and some other effects that are prolonging the sound. Okay. I'm not averse to doing that. Not a purist in that sense. I want to get the sound I want to get however I get it. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it gives a starting point of a tone that I really like, you know, a timbre I really like. Okay. And then I can extend it infinitely through different effects. So I can get almost uh, infinite, infinite sustain okay. on it okay. in that way. Interesting. Not directly, you know. I mean, it is possible to play for a long time, but again, you still have to the bow will only go so far and then you have to reverse direction and there's always a little bit of a hesitation or a a gap there as you as the bow changes direction yeah do you like it for the pressure differences that you can get from from the way you apply the bow is that something you play with i think as i get more adept at it Mm -hmm. yeah because you know just like with a guitar if you pluck it closer to the bridge you get a sharper sound and away from the bridge you get a a different kind of sound. Same thing with any string, you know, so if I bow closer to the bridge, I'll get a different kind of sound. If I bow it in certain ways, I'll get different harmonics, uh, a different harmonic content of the of the note. Harmonics in the sense of, you know, every sound is made up of a series of harmonics. It's called the harmonic series. Different instruments sound different ways because they have different relative values of those harmonics, but they all have harmonics. But playing it with different pressure or a different angle or at a different location, you get different harmonics on there too. So yeah, that's all great. That's all great stuff. I also love the, just the minimalist design. Yeah. This thing. Aesthetically, it's very appealing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's solid and it's beautiful. It's made of this beautiful wood, you know, and uh, so it's, it's a lovely thing. Yeah. Very cool <laughs> instrument. It feels almost like a full circle here. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. With the, with the, um, yeah, full circle of all, although it's, you know, most circles are really spirals, right? Because, uh, you're, you're ending up at a different place, even though you're moving in a circular direction. So, uh, it's it's just, I would say it's a, it's more of a spiral in the sense that, yeah, I started with, with a stringed instrument and now I'm, uh, using a stringed instrument again, but it's a, it's a very different kind of stringed instrument produces different sounds in a different way. And it's, I mean, yeah, you know, you can, people do a lot of beautiful droney music with guitars too, using mm-hmm. effects, but there it's mostly the effect that, that prolongs the note. Here you have some natural prolonging of the note from the bow and then, then it could be enhanced. Anyway, they're, they're both valid, but uh, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's circular in that sense. Where do you see your work going from here? I have no idea. No idea. Yeah. And I don't need to know. Okay. <laughs> I just want to keep exploring the the ideas that come up in my head or that 
come out of just playing with things and experimenting. I mean, it's all going to be coming out of my brain, you know, <laughs> so it's going to have some consistency, I think, probably in that regard, you know, because I'm, I have a certain perspective, you know, and my perspective is not really changing. Uh, I mean, the, the precepts are not changing the way it, I use those precepts maybe changes, but I'm, I think I'm always going to be, I feel like I'll probably always be concerned with some of these considerations of focus, concentration, the, the paying attention to small details. I mean, I think there's an infinite area to explore there. Just going to trust the process. <laughs> Thank you for having me to your studio. I appreciate no, it. Thanks for coming. The music for this podcast was created by Two Hands. You can hear more music by Two Hands by visiting Two Hands, that's two, T-O-O, dot bandcamp.com. Join me next time when I speak with ceramicist Esther Clark. You can stay up to date by subscribing through your favorite podcast service, joining our Substack mailing list at therootseller.substack.com, or following me on Instagram at beyondthebeyondman.